Our scripture reading this evening picks up where we left off this morning in Isaiah chapter 7. Isaiah 7, found on page 727 of your pew Bibles. We will be reading verse 10 and following. Remember, in those first nine verses, we had the historical situation of what was facing what was facing Ahaz and Judah, and what the Lord had done in declaring to him that he would protect his people, and that this threat would not come upon them, but that he was calling for their faith and their trust, and particularly for Ahaz to trust in him. Before we read and continue in this reading, let's ask for God's blessing. Lord, we are astonished and overwhelmed at the great awe to open your word and to have that put before us. What a gift. What a gift that we too often take so light to have an authoritative, infallible, and inerrant word from God who loves his people placed before us to declare to us the story and message of salvation. May we see that here this evening as well in this, this promise of one we hold so dear. We ask this in your name. Amen. Isaiah 7, beginning in verse 10. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be deep as Sheol or high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, and I will not put the Lord to the test. And he said, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. The Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah, the king of Assyria. In that day, the Lord will whistle for the fly that is at the end of the streams of Egypt and for the bee that is in the land of Assyria. And they will come and settle in the steep ravines and in the clefts of the rocks and on all the thorn bushes and on all the pastures. In that day, the Lord will shave with a razor that is hired beyond the river with the king of Assyria, the head and the hair of the feet, and it will sweep away the beard also. In that day, a man will keep alive a young cow and two sheep, and because of the abundance of milk that they give, he will eat curds, for everyone who is left in the land will eat curds and honey. In that day, every place where there used to be a thousand vines worth a thousand shekels of silver will become briars and thorns. With bow and arrows, a man will come there, for all the land will be briars and thorns. And as for all the hills that used to be hoed with a hoe, you will not come there for fear of briars and thorns, but they will become a place where cattle are let loose and where sheep tread. Ascends the reading of God's word. I wonder if you've ever had a situation or been part of a situation where you were giving a, a gift or, or meant some gracious, good, good graces to someone, sort of trying to maybe bury a hatchet, maybe, maybe give some kind of peace offering, we might call it. You're, you're trying to, to let this person who is against you maybe have an opportunity to turn back and, and to see that your heart is not against them, something like that. 
Maybe you've had that experience where you would give them such a gift, where you would come to them and and basically you're understanding, look, I know it's been rough between us in the past. I know we haven't always seen eye to eye, but would you would you accept this? I, I, I could see that you might need this or could use this gift. Some gesture like that. And maybe it was greeted by this person with words that sounded right, with words that said something to the effect, yeah, that might be very helpful, that might be useful, thanks. And then sort of, they grab it and toss it away. And so the the gift that was meant to be a gracious act, that was meant for their own good, was taken, and though it was greeted in word as if it was received, it was actually by action and by all intents and purposes scorned. It was thrown away. It wasn't desired. And so the the words were hiding what was animosity or a a hatred, a, a... desire that they wouldn't bring out in their words, but would very well in their actions and thoughts. Well, that's something that is taking place in the text here today. We saw it this morning. We saw the Lord give this great, gracious promise and sign, that the, or word, I should say, the sign is this evening, but words that, that they would not fall and that the enemies would actually fall. And, and then the, the text begins this evening with a sign or an asked-for sign, a sign, ask anything of me, is what the Lord is saying. He gives this gracious gesture, and what does Ahaz do? Ahaz scorns it with words that sound pious, but are anything but. We see that as we look at our point this evening, our first point, the sign of Emmanuel. And I would highly recommend to keep your Bibles open. It might be very helpful for you as we go through these verses and explain some of what's going on here. Begins, ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be deep as Sheol or high as heaven. It's a blank check that the Lord just gave Ahaz. Fill in the number. Fill it in. Ask of me. Ask a sign of me. Let it be as deep as the pits of of death itself. Let it be as high as what heaven is. Anything here is, is open. Ask me a sign. And what's the purpose of this? We saw that the odds are stacked against them, it seems insurmountable. Here comes all these enemies. And so the Lord is saying, with this before you, ask of me something that I can do for you, that you and the people would see that your security is in me, that they would be assured of it. Ask me a sign. And then Ahaz responds, I will not ask. And I will not put the Lord to the test. If I can step away from formal language, what a dumb response. Just what a... Just, you can't even come up with words of how ridiculous a response that is. I won't put the Lord to the test. Hiding what's actually scorn and pious-sounding language. This is what the Lord says, ask of me. You know... It's not a mark of piety when someone is giving you this great, gracious gift. You know, you've been in those situations, too, where to actually turn aside the gift is an incredible insult. And that's what this is. To turn aside this sign, to ask nothing of the Lord in this situation, is an insult. And he's hiding behind these words. It's not sincere and we might think that. We might think, well, yeah, but doesn't, the, doesn't God's word say not to do that? Don't put the Lord to the test. It does. But that's in a, a completely different situation. 
That's when the Lord has called his people to do something and and he has given you the the revelation and the signs and he's assured you of it and at this point you're you're wanting a sign is just because you don't believe it. It's a lack of faith. And and especially what's different about this situation is the Lord is saying and telling you, ask it. And this isn't just for him. This was for him and all the people that they would know that they could be assured of their security and safety and the Lord and who he is. The Lord is giving him an opportunity for him to ask of God in heaven and for God in heaven to respond with power and might and declare who he is. To not respond to that isn't piously not putting him to the test. That's rejecting him. Might sound good, but it's careless. It's dismissive. He doesn't ask for a sign because he doesn't want one. And he doesn't care. He hasn't looked to the Lord, and he's not going to continue to do that now. He has despised the Lord and has, from the day he took the rule to the day of his death, he doesn't care. He's, he's trusting in Assyria. And so this, this request, this asking of a sign, is scorned and trying just to be dismissed. And so God responds through Isaiah. And you, you hear the insult that this was. And he says, Hear then, O house of David. And again, just like we saw this morning, this is the house of David should be like a blinking light. That, that's not right. This is the check engine light. It's blinking. The house of David doesn't scorn God. Or at least it shouldn't. Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. And here we have that Christmas promise, that that promise that hits so close to us and our salvation and our need. God with us, Emmanuel is promised. And it's given because a king of the line of David had rejected a sign. And so the Lord says, because you've wearied me, I will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive. She will bear a son. And his name will be Emmanuel. This section is greatly debated. A lot of the debate lies on that word virgin, and is that what's meant there? Is that the way it should be translated? Is it truly a virgin or just a woman, a young woman? Is that all of it's saying? And the reason why this debate rages is you're trying to make sense of what follows. Because it seems as if what would follow would, would be that there should be a, a, in a fulfillment of this right away, that there should be some kind of fulfillment to this prophecy, because it seems to be tied to the time in which these cities will fall. And so, how can that be? How can this so clearly be a reference as we see it, and rightly so, to Jesus Emmanuel, and yet seem to need an immediate fulfillment? And another reason that there's so much debate over this is for those who don't believe that's possible. Those who don't believe a virgin could conceive. Those who deny the supernatural and say, that's not what this text is saying. I don't want to get into all those debates. Rather, just to say this verse should be translated with virgin. That is the proper translation It should be that way. The Hebrew word used here, Alma, is intending to mean a young woman of marriageable age who is a virgin. That's the way it's best translated. And the last thing I'm going to say about that is the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, was written by those who knew Hebrew, and they used the word virgin to translate this verse. So that that 
controversy. That question of the text isn't really a legitimate one. This is a promise of a virgin birth. But there are other questions that are more difficult to answer. We began to talk about them already. Like, how would this be assigned to Ahaz if this is truly, and it is, meaning Jesus, as he would come so many years later? Ahaz will be long dead by then. So what would that mean? And I think, actually, the translation in the ESV might make this a little more unclear. It is a very difficult topic, and that's why I want you to keep your Bibles open so that we can work through this and see, perhaps, what is a better way of understanding and translating this. A lot of people would try to explain this and say this prophecy needs a double fulfillment. A double fulfillment is a very common part of prophetic usage. That's the idea that there is a primary intended fulfillment in the future, but there is before that a nearer, more immediate fulfillment that's on a a lesser scale. And so you have sort of this partial fulfillment to be filled fully and finally later. And that happens all the time in God's Word. And I would say, and many would say, that this is a place of double fulfillment. I used to be more persuaded of that and am less so now. I'm not persuaded that this is an instance of double fulfillment, but rather an instance that is describing Emmanuel, describing Jesus, and prophetically pointing to him and him alone. And I'll explain that as we go through. Most of the reason for seeing this double fulfillment is because the next two verses seem to indicate that the sign will be fulfilled in the next several years. That's the way it's translated. In my opinion, it's too simplistic to say that Isaiah's soon-to-be-delivered son in chapter 8, and if you look in your Bibles and skim forward to chapter 8, you'll see that Isaiah goes to his wife, there's a conception, there's a birth of a son, and so many will say this is an initial fulfillment of that. Or perhaps that they will say there was an initial fulfillment in Ahaz's son, Hezekiah, a righteous king. The reason I'm not persuaded of that is because clearly and very purposefully, the name in chapter 8 is not Emmanuel. And nowhere along the, the line is Isaiah's son linked to the Emmanuel figure of chapters 8 and 9. And so there doesn't need to be this fulfillment initially in Isaiah's own son that would be assigned to them. In fact, you see the sign in chapter 8, if you read the beginning in those first five verses, you'll see that the sign that Isaiah's son is showing is that there will be this coming judgment and there will be a judgment on the kings of Israel and Syria in the next few years. So you'd have to ask yourself the question, why would it be that there would be this Emmanuel figure and Isaiah's son that would both indicate that the, the, the judgment of these nations would be in the next few years. doesn't seem to make sense, and that's one reason I'm not persuaded by that. Following what Del Ralph Davis says, I believe that the sign of Emmanuel was not given to Ahaz to provide an immediate sign of the coming crisis. Remember, we just read it. Ahaz rejected it. He didn't ask for one. And so the Lord does tell him, I will give you a sign. But it's no longer a sign that's having to deal with what's immediately going to happen. And there is a link then. He does give a different sign and a different son in Isaiah's own son to say their judgment is coming and it will happen soon. Rather, Ahaz rejected that sign, and so God decides to give a great sign of his faithfulness to his people, and that sign would hang there awaiting fulfillment. 
But now we have to deal with those verses. Verses 15 and 16, as currently translated, would still seem to indicate that Emmanuel would come and serve as a current time indicator, that there would be a fulfillment of this in the next 3 to 13 years. That's how long it took for these two nations, Syria and Israel, to fall. It would seem unlikely that God would give those two sons the same meaning. And so, going to verse 15, it's probably, not better, it's probably better not to translate verse 15 as indicating time, and it would be legitimate not to translate it that way. And so, this is the way the ESV reads in the text before you. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. What some would say, and I would be persuaded of that, is it's better not to translate it that way, but to translate it this way. He shall eat curds and honey to know how to refuse the evil and choose the good. So that it is not an indication of time and when this will happen, but it's an indication of what will happen and characterize this coming Emmanuel, eating curds and honey. But now you have another thing. You see, this text has a lot of details to work through. What does that mean? What does curds and honey mean? Is that, is that the food of riches? Is that the food of poverty? What is it meaning? Because it can be used as the food of riches. But normally it's used in that way as a supplement to what else is there. For example, I don't know that you would only want to eat curds and honey and think you're living it up. To just have that wouldn't be a rather staple diet. You wouldn't be able to live well off of that. Rather, that could be scraping by a living on what you're finding. And I think we should see eating curds and honey in a negative sense in light of verse 22. See, you guys are in the pastor's study right now, and we're, we're digging in deep. You've got to do that sometimes. So chapter 7, verse 22. And because of the abundance of milk that they give, he will eat curds, for everyone who is left in the land will eat curds and honey. Though disputed, I believe that verse is showing in this time of judgment that even the, the, the few remaining people will be fed by these curds and honey because it will be so depopulated that even just a few livestock can, can provide that for the people. That verse 22 is, is linking though that meal and that food with an exile, with a coming judgment. So then, that would make sense to translate it, not that he shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, but to know how. This is a similar point to what happens in Deuteronomy 8, verse 3. And God humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of God. You see, what that text from Deuteronomy shows is that there is a capacity for, for this meager rations, or in this case, manna, that, that daily allotment of manna that grew so old for the people, to have a point. And the point was them to know a greater truth, to know the Lord and know that they needed to be fed on his word. And something similar may be going on here, where this Emmanuel figure is not being said to come right now, but that he will be fed on the food of exile. He will grow up in exile. He will be part of the people cut off, and as such, he will grow knowing how to refuse the evil and choose the good. And when you understand it that way, you also see a contrast that Isaiah is making to this Davidic descendant Ahaz, to Emmanuel. Ahaz quite clearly does not know 
how to refuse the evil and choose the good. He has chosen the evil, and he's refused the good. For the coming Emmanuel, one who will be nurtured on the food of the exile and the, the exile itself. And it's okay to, to use that terminology, even though the people come back to the land, they, they are very real still in exile. They still haven't been delivered. And so this Emmanuel will come, and he will know right and good. He will rule with morality and justice. And he will come from meagerness and meager beginnings. That's what I think is being conveyed by that prophecy. Now you still see in verse 16 that there is an indication of time. And so this then would either mean that Israel and Syria will have already fallen before Emmanuel has reached this point of maturity, which is true, even taking the interpretation I just gave, or Davis would again translate this in a different way. He would translate it this way. So I'm going to read his translation if you follow along in your Bible. Before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the ground which you are tearing up will be forsaken of both its kings. You see, the ESV has made an interpretive decision to say that the, the land being referred to is this one united land, meaning the coalition of Israel and Syria. Davis would argue that that's never the way that it would be utilized to describe these two different nations as one land, but that the land being mentioned is actually the promised land of Israel. And so the two kings that are mentioned are actually the wicked king of Israel and Ahaz himself. And we'll translate it differently then, that it's this ground which you are tearing up will be forsaken by both its kings. Whether you're persuaded of that or not, we could still see this as not requiring a double fulfillment, but the promises of Emmanuel who's coming. And then there's another sign given in the, the prophet's son that this current threat will be dealt with in the next few years. What's the significance of this? Now hopefully we can step back from all these interpretive decisions. Why would this matter? Well, it matters because they are in desperate need of God, and they are in desperate need of the one to come who knows how to choose the evil, I mean choose the good and refuse the evil. This turns then into coming judgment. Verse 17 and on, Isaiah declares to Ahaz that the Lord is coming upon him and upon his house, and that there's judgment coming because, as we saw this morning, a, a true faith would have you trust in the Lord even against all odds. But what happens when you despise that? Judgment. Judgment is coming. Unbelief brings judgment, but the sign of Emmanuel declares the coming deliverance of God. And that's what we see, this destructive act that's coming upon them. You see, where's this coming from? Where's it going to happen? Who's going to be the one that will initially bring this judgment? And verse 17 supplies the answer, the king of Assyria. To Ahaz, he's thrown in his lot with him. He's made his alliance with him. He's paid him off with the funds from God's house. He's the one he's looking to salvation. But who's going to be the one to destroy the land and begin that destruction? Assyria will. In fear, Ahaz ran to join and made a deal with the devil and joined this Assyria juggernaut. But what's interesting is that the Lord's 
word is true and he never needed to. He never should have. You know what's interesting is that he thought that he needed to find salvation in the king of Assyria, but it would be his own son, Hezekiah, who would face a threat from Assyria, from a different Assyrian king, Sennacherib, who would come with a massive army, who was finally making that push to Egypt that we talked about this morning, who was finally going to get there, and along the way was conquering left and right, But you know what's interesting? Sennacherib in his annals boasts about all his accomplishments. But all he has to boast about in his conquest of the land was conquering some of the lesser cities around Jerusalem. And he says, bottling up Hezekiah like a bird in a cage. That's that's how he boasts about himself. It's not a real great boast. And what happened? This massive Assyrian army was heading to Egypt. Why didn't it make it there? It never got there, and why? Isaiah 37, 36 and 37 gives the answer because in answer to prayers to the Lord, the angel of the Lord in one night visited the Assyrian camp and destroyed 185,000 Assyrians. In one night. Just let that sink in. The power of the Lord to save and to trust in him. It's like an afterthought. Go send the angel of the Lord there and he wipes out this supposedly great army. And and Sennacherib never explains why. It just is left in history that he crawled back to his nation because he faced someone far greater than himself. And this massive empire never made it there because our God, our Father, is that much greater and that much better. And that's how the sign of Emmanuel comes in. But there now is judgment. There's judgment on the nations. Verses 18 and 19 show what will happen. Talks about Assyria and Egypt coming, and Egypt would come years later with Josiah and defeat him. The text uses imagery of the flies, the land of the flies, the land of the bees. The land of the flies is Egypt, that the flies were very prevalent there. Bees were very common in Assyria. And what's the imagery there is the Lord is whistling to his flies and his bees to to come as his own razor to to shave the land. And and the the whole shaving that's going to happen, this whole judgment will be over all of it. That term feet, that will shave the feet, is a euphemism in the text to describe virtually the entire body that is going to be shaved, meaning the entire land will be judged. And even the razor that he's using, these two nations, the Lord says, is a hired razor. And what does that mean? It means he has no relationship with them. He's hired them out. He's brought the razor. He's grabbed it. He's using it without any care, right? That's what you do with rental tools, or perhaps you shouldn't, but you don't care about them. They're not yours. You have no relationship with this razor. You have no relationship with this tool. And so what's the point of of even caring about it? You can use it for full destruction. And that's the idea of the judgment that's coming. That God's going to do. He's going to take these wicked nations and then bring them to, to judge his people. Verses 21 and 22 describe the extent of that devastation. The most minimal of livestock, a young cow and two sheep, will be able to create leftovers for those who remain. That's how I would interpret this. Not that in the middle of this section of judgment comes this shining, oh, but there's a bright spot. No. It's that it's so depopulated 
that even these few animals can, can feed them. That's not something to be, to be rejoicing in. Verse 23, the meaning is that the inhabitants will be so few that you can't find anyone to give the smallest amount of money to buy even the most valuable of estates and valuable of properties. And you're, you're selling it for a trifle and no one's buying it. No one wants it. There's no one there who could want it. Verse 24, here we see that what was the richest land, what could have cultivated the, the greatest wealth the, the, and greatest vineyards, all of these things, is now just a hunting ground. It's a barren wasteland. It's covered in thorns and briars. Wild beasts have their dens there. Verse 25 is meaning that even in the hills formerly desolate and uncultivated, now men will seek to live there because no part of the country will be safe. They're, they're out of the inhabited places and, and on the fringes of what they used to care about, but that's where they're dwelling there just to find some safety. And again, this is the context of this Christmas promise. And that's to where I want to return as we close this evening. What had God asked Ahaz? Ask anything. Ask anything. For as deep as the grave, as high as heaven. What could you have asked for? Think of the things that God has done in his word. Gideon, when he was kind of testing God actually, asked for a change of, of dew in the morning. Alter the dew on the fleece and, and that way I'll, I'll believe you. There was a sign for him. God, in his power, had caused the sun to stand still so that his armies could destroy their rivals. He brought darkness over all the land of Egypt. He called fire to fall from heaven and, and burn up an offering that was drenched full of water. He caused a little grain and oil to never run out. He caused three years of droughts in response to a prayer from Elijah. He made a road of dry land through the Red Sea and through the Jordan River. All these things are just a sample of things that could have been asked, but I bet no one would have had the audacity to ask of the Lord what he gave. What if Ahaz had said, Lord, this threat is too great for us. Will you come down? Will you come to earth? I bet no one would have had the audacity to ask that. I think God was really meaning what he said when he gave that stipulation, ask anything. Because that's what he did. That's the sign he actually gave. I will come down. I will step down and come to this earth and deal with all the problems and enemies. But it wasn't just Assyria. He could let, he could let an angel do that. It was to deal with sin. The true enemy, the, the, the true culprit, the true need for an exodus. That's what he could have asked for, God with us, Emmanuel. Pleased as man with men to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. And the full beauty of this then comes in Matthew. Would you turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 1? We're going to read Matthew 1 verses 18 to 25. says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. 
When his mother married had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband, Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear. Do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Davis points out a very interesting fact in verse 20. If you would look at verse 20. Sort of sounds somewhat similar to the conversation the Lord had with Ahaz a bit, doesn't it? First, Joseph is called son of David, a reference to the Davidic line. But no longer is it a son of David sitting on the throne with power around him. He is a carpenter. He has been raised on the food of exile. He is meager, but he is of the house of David. And then look at the other piece there. Do not fear. Is that not similar to what he had told Ahaz so long ago? Do not fear and do not be afraid. And so what you have here in Matthew is the fulfillment of this promise with a different descendant of David who is told not to fear but listen and who does. And from from Mary, from the virgin promised, here she is, is the son, is Emmanuel, is the Savior to deliver, to grow, to grow in wisdom and understanding, to know how to choose the good over the evil who is everything Ahaz was not, who is the sign that was promised, everything that would be our hope, was the hope that was intentionally hanging there for 700 years so that the people would know, even as their land was being shaved in judgment, that he was to come. And here he is. Here he is, that answer to asking of the Lord anything you would. God, would you come here and save us? And that's what he did. Unbelief brings judgment, but the sign of Emmanuel declares the coming deliverance of God. And that is how you await Advent. That is what the people were doing for that entire time, awaiting this fulfillment. We have the great pleasure of having seen it and witnessed it and await another coming, another Advent, a coming that will signal the final end of all of this, the destruction of all the enemies, the upraising of a church that's fighting to a church that is victorious. And what's our hope? Emmanuel, God with us. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are so thankful for a blessing given in your word and for the the words to know that you care for your people, that yes, you will bring discipline and judgment unto those whom you have determined, but you will save and be faithful to your remnant. And we see here who the, the prime example of that is, our Lord and Savior, who from a line of David, 
who from a line of exile and destruction springs forth the very answer to our prayer and to the sign that you have given that you deliver and that you are able to save. We trust in you alone. Amen.